0: Okay, we're in John chapter 13, and um, I'm only going to be reading the first three verses, so we won't take a lot of this uh, this afternoon. John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. So we stop right there, and let's have a word of prayer. Loving Father, we do thank you for the reading of the Scripture, especially as we think of Christ and of the great work of redemption, which he set out to accomplish as he came from the Father and was to return unto the Father, as he would resume his former glory with God the Father. Lord, we do thank you for this great ministry of redemption that the Incarnate Christ came to die for the sins of the world. We praise you in Jesus name and ask your blessing. Amen. Amen. Well as we look at this brief passage this afternoon, it is rather a short passage that I've chosen but I chose it for one particular reason as I was reading this selection, and that is uh, the phrase which is given here, which says that he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. Now, that phrase is, uh, of course, very full of meaning. As the Lord Jesus came into the world to die for his own people. That he came to present himself as the Lamb of God and the sacrifice that would make atonement for the sins of the world. And of course, um, as he called his own disciples unto himself and drew them unto himself, this small band of faithful followers as we count them in his calling them, and in their loyalty to him. We find that he embraced them with love, and they embraced him with great admiration and a kind of phileo love for sure, a brotherly love. And the three areas we'd like to look at this afternoon is, uh, first of all, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, of course, this phrase we have seen before, and we understand the intent of the meaning of it, that he was drawing closer and closer to the time when he would have to uh, suffer the sorrows of the cross, and uh, that he would die. Um, physically but that he would through his very own shed blood uh, make atonement for the sins of the world. And this of course at the very will of the Father. The cup which he was to drink of was this cup of suffering and sorrow of which we uh, in every sense of the word admire the Lord Jesus for who he is, and realize that God loved us through him, and that he took upon himself our sins. Secondly, he loved his own unto the end. Well, this this uh, phrase, of course, as I said, is is full of meaning. It is full of meaning because we know that the uh, the twelve followed the Lord. They were with him throughout his ministry. It is full of meaning because um, he not only nurtured them and taught them and gave them the understanding of the Word of God, of that truth that would lead him to the cross, but that he became very closely and very much endeared to them all. Um, In fact, one of them is called John the Beloved, just because he had such a close relationship to Jesus and seemed to bond with him like perhaps none of the other disciples did. Yet we know that this great love that Christ had for the disciples was one which was agape love. It was the love which was of God. It was that love that would love them unto the very end of his public ministry, even to the extent where he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And then thirdly, the betrayal by Judas meant that uh, Jesus would go unto the Father. This betrayal was meant to be. This betrayal, though it is a, a Terrific and horrible uh, act perpetrated against the Savior. Because this betrayal took place, Jesus knew that that hour would ensue upon him and uh, would engulf him. And he must go to the cross. He must go through these sufferings. And uh, even as the prophet in the Old Testament would write concerning him, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, by his stripes we are healed. And so it is that Jesus knew that these things were to come upon him. God's love is without measure, Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Yet in his mortal flesh, his love was demonstrated first to the twelve disciples that he called as his own and that walked with him throughout his earthly ministry. He loved them to the end. As his hour of suffering drew near and the time of sorrows were at hand, The will of the Father was nearer than ever before. The disciples shared many wonderful days at the feet of Jesus. Yet more than their love and admiration for him, Jesus loved them with an everlasting love. Jesus loved them with an everlasting love. And we'll bring up that idea in a few moments. But we find that this sense of of uh, of love and companionship and brotherly love that that the disciples had toward the Lord was surpassed by the agape love that Jesus had for them, and we must always keep that in view: that Jesus loved them with a much fuller and more compassionate and divine sense of love than even they could comprehend. Let us remember that the love of Jesus is an enduring love. And because of his love toward us, we are secured in the family of God and forever loved, and forever loved. So Jesus uh, had this great love for his own and we uh, take note of that in other scriptures in the Word of God, which Jesus speaks about. And we'll consider the that shepherd love that Jesus had for his disciples as well. But first of all, let us consider that Jesus knew that this hour of suffering was at hand and that he must go unto the Father. Look at verse one with me here in John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And so uh, as we see here before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come. And uh, we get the sense here then that Jesus is drawing very near to that time when he should fulfill the Father's will. And Jesus knew then that uh, the the. The hour, that moment, that time, those circumstances that would come upon him were very near. They were at hand, as the scripture says. And that Jesus must, must go to the cross and that the sufferings would uh, come upon him like a great flood. The sufferings of the cross would be much more than an execution. His life-given sacrifice would be an atonement for the sins of the world. His life-given sacrifice. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. Therefore, we recognize then that the sufferings of Jesus would be to glorify, glorify God as much as the Father would also glorify his Son. And so the sufferings of Christ were very important to the completed work of redemption that not only would this great work of redemption make uh, possible, the saving of his own, but that they would be glorified even through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so this intimate relationship uh, be, would become much more vital because of the cross of Christ. In John twelve twenty three, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come and the Son, that the Son of Man should be glorified. And of course, that is what we read right here in this passage that Jesus meant that uh, he would complete and finish that work of redemption, that the hour or the moment or the circumstances for that to take place were very much at hand. As verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come because it was at the time of the Feast of the Passover. And uh, of course we know what the Feast of the Passover was all about. This feast was a very important feast of remembrance for it marked the time of celebration and liberation from bondage under Egypt. Under Egypt, and that that whole Old Testament story, no doubt, is fresh in your mind as you as you think about uh, how that they were some 430 years in bondage to Egypt, and uh, how that Pharaoh treated them as slaves and servants to his court, and uh, that they were held in uh, very close subjection to his will and. He did not want to let them go. Uh, Of course, at the very beginning of their time in Egypt, it was much different. It was under a different Pharaoh. It was under a Pharaoh that felt obligated to Joseph because God used Joseph to not only save all Egypt and uh, to provide for the, uh, the, the amount of food stores that it would take, For them to go through seven years of uh, famine, uh, but we find that God would preserve the people of Israel. But later, under a different Pharaoh, things would change, and uh, that that bondage brought in great hardship to the nation of of Israel. Barnes, in his comment, says this, his hour was come, the hour appointed in the purpose of God for him to die. Having loved his own, having given to them decisive and constant proofs of his love, this was done by his calling them to follow him, by patiently teaching them, by bearing with their errors and weaknesses, and by making them the heralds of his truth and the heirs of eternal love. Well, perhaps as we read that sense there of bearing with their errors and weaknesses, perhaps we can relate to the disciples quite adequately. We have plenty of errors and weaknesses too. And perhaps you wonder many times why the Lord chose you to be one of his followers. Perhaps you wonder sometimes in God's grace why God extends such... Mercy and grace to you and to me. Well, it is because of His great love for us. It is because that sense of His love that He loved them unto the end. God came with no usual love. No, this virtuous love which God gave through His Son is part of His own attribute the attribute of love that belongs to God alone. God's love alone is able to save, able to extend mercy, able to administer grace, able to, to redeem us and purchase, back, purchase us back from the slave market of sin as we get that sense of our redemption. And so it is that he loved his own unto the end. Well, um, we know the years in Egypt were difficult years for the sons of Jacob. Remember the 12 sons of Jacob. Difficult years for the sons of Jacob. And they were being held against their will to a tyrant ruler. With a strong arm, the Lord would deliver his people from slavery and bondage. A deliverer was called by God to tell Pharaoh, "Let my people go." I suppose we remember that uh, movie with Charlton Heston, <laughs> and uh, and how that he portrayed such a strong character as Moses. And he said, "Let my people go," <laughs> and uh, we all remember how that that uh, that story uh, is is kind of unfolded on. the the great cinema screen, but you know how much more dramatic it was for the sons of Jacob to see God perform those miracles before their very eyes. And that Moses and Aaron actually stood before this great pharaoh of Egypt who possessed all power and might and was a great... Empire in itself, and yet God brought that empire to its knees that He might let His people go to liberate them. To liberate them, ten plagues of God would drive Pharaoh to his knees, and the final plague against Egypt would claim all the firstborn except those who were under the blood of the sacrificial lamb as the death angel passed over. Now of course that part right there becomes significant to what we are saying here in chapter 13 verse 1. Because, these, because it's, as it says now before the feast of the Passover the Passover. That's what we're talking about right here. That's, that's this Old Testament story. That's this miracle of God and demonstration of God's love toward the 12 sons of Jacob. To, to Israel. God's love would perpetrate that great act of redemption and deliverance by Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, by, by Moses, against Pharaoh, and that the people would be allowed to go free, because the Passover that would be instituted was a Passover that basically said you trust in God and you do this sacrifice and you put this blood on your doorpost and upon your lintel or you will die. It is a sacrifice of redemption. It was a sacrifice of redemption for the people of God. And it became forever and still is forever the 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 celebration of deliverance and liberation from bondage to Egypt and even today, all Israel recognizes what this historical celebration is about. Albeit, they perhaps, uh, many of them do not understand that Christ is the true fulfillment of it. Except, Except they be Messianic Jews and then they know that is what is connected to this very statement. Jesus would become that sacrificial lamb, and Jesus would bring a redemption that would be prophetically fulfilled through his very life and ministry. A redemption by the blood of Christ. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was that Passover lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. John, as much as he knew, who could know what was going on, he knew it. Why? Because he was a prophet of God. And every prophet of God spoke the word of God. They may not have understood everything they said, but they spoke the word of God. And John believed everything that he was saying though he perhaps did not understand everything he was saying. You know, we do the same thing, don't we? We believe every word in this book called the Bible, but we don't understand every word of it. You see what I mean? <laughs> John was the same. Later on, while he was in prison, he sent word and wanted to know if Jesus was truly the one they were looking for. That doesn't, that doesn't take away from who John was or what he had to say. No, he was a prophet of God. And he came speaking the word of God. And you know, every true pastor is like that. Pastors don't often know what they're saying sometimes. They try to figure it all out. We try to come up with the right interpretation. We don't want to say anything that's wrong. We strive very hard just to say the right words. But we don't often understand everything we're saying. Talk about election and predestination and a few other uh, of those sovereign doctrines and and the attributes of God and you can you can name them and you can you can try to define them the very best that you can and even talk about the triunity of the Godhead, the Trinity, and still you're repeating the truth of the Word of God even though you don't fully understand everything. Just saying. <laughs> but it is the job of the pastor to say it whether the pastor fully understands it or not because he may be fooling you a little bit we may think we may think we know but we sometimes we sometimes we don't sometimes we're just saying what we have to say which is okay you have to you have to say the truth and the truth is right here well anyway here 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 is a very important truth Jesus came at that time of the Passover. His hour was at hand. He knew that those circumstances of his crucifixion and sorrows and sufferings were upon him. And he loved them to the very end of his ministry with that same agape love that he knew and that he loved them with. If he had been anybody else, you know, he might have at this particular moment turned tail and run and said, I'm not going to do this. This is just a little bit too much. But no, no. The love of God took him to the cross. The love of God caused him to suffer the sufferings he went through. The love of God said, I came to die and to fulfill the Father's will and I will complete I will finish the work. Remember on the cross? It is finished. I will finish the work. He came to do that, you see. In John one twenty nine, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. See, John said it. Did he understand fully what he said? Mm, Well, maybe, maybe, uh, but probably not fully. Because, well, we're human after all, are we not? Even prophets were human. Therefore did his disciples seek after him. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see they came and saw where he dwelt and the abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. John chapter 1, verse 35 to 39. Well, as the a division of the book kind of comes to play at this particular juncture, especially from chapter 13 to chapter 17, the It is called the Upper Room Discourse. You find Jesus in the Upper Room with his disciples. Those particular events play out concerning his uh, relationship to the disciples and those things that were going to come to pass. Jesus uh, would be betrayed by Judas. They would go over the brook Kidron. He would go unto the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He would go through much agonies until the time when Judas would betray him with a kiss. His prayer unto the Father. All of those things uh, are part of that which uh, normally is called the Upper Room Discourse. The Believer's Bible Commentary makes this observation in chapter 13. The Upper Room Discourse begins... Jesus was no longer walking among the hostile Jews. He had retired with his disciples to an upper room in Jerusalem for a final time of fellowship with them before going forth to his trial and crucifixion. Chapter 13 through 17 is one of the best loved sections in the New Testament. As we know that it unfolds all of that prior to his sufferings and death on the cross. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his hour had come. The day before the crucifixion, the Lord knew that the time had come for him to die, to rise again, and go back to heaven. He had loved his own, that is, those who were true believers. He loved them to the end of his earthly ministry. And will continue to love them throughout eternity. But he also loved them to an infinite degree as he was about to demonstrate. Of course, the love of God is so much more than we can define. But in that time that he had spent with his disciples, he demonstrated a love to them that they would only later understand and, bec- and, and begin to realize. In fact, isn't that one of the things we marvel over? That God loves us. And that God does the things that He does. And He loves us. And so it is the... He loved His own unto the end as we see... Again, in verse 1, reading chapter 1 of 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world uh, and go uh, out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So, he loved his own who were in the world. The end, in this case, means that Jesus' relationship to his inner circle of disciples was enduring. It means that it was enduring. He loved them unto the end. But not the end as we think of the end. The end is just, well, we see the end on a book and, and, it's, and the story stops. We see the end and the, the words the end and at a movie and it's, it's over. It's finished. Jesus loved them to the end, but it meant that even though his relationship with them on earth was coming to a close, his love to them would be enduring. It would continue. Because that is the very nature of God's love. There is no limit to it, it is without end to those that he loves. And so Jesus loved his disciples to the end. To have a long-lasting relationship to his disciples was like a shepherd to his sheep. Now, of course, sometimes the Lord has to put things into a kind of a story form that we can understand them. And he did this many times with parables, explaining something, and then he would tell the disciples afterwards what he just said. To help them to grasp it. So Jesus used this motif or illustration of love to his people. Like a shepherd, he gathered his sheep together, called them to himself and taught them to follow him. He fed and cared for them and protected them as a true shepherd would care for the flock. And he said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And we're familiar with those words. He goes on to say, in verses 14 to 18, in the same chapter, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice that. I lay down my life for the sheep. Here is that, that, Vicarious sense of dying for others, sacrificial uh, and full sense of, of suffering. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again, the resurrection. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18. Walford states, In contrast with a hired workman, the good shepherd has an intimacy with the personal interests of the sheep. I know my sheep, stresses his ownership and watchful oversight. My sheep know me, stresses their reciprocal knowledge of an intimacy with him. This intimacy is modeled on the loving, trusting, mutual relationship of the Father and the Son. Jesus' care and concern is evidenced by his prediction of his coming death for the flock some shepherds have willingly died while protecting their sheep from danger. Jesus willingly gave his life for his sheep. There's a difference here because a shepherd might be out there uh, protecting a flock. Some animal comes along or some thief comes along and might kill him. So he dies while he's trying to protect his flock. But what does Jesus do? Jesus willingly sacrificed himself. In other words, Jesus Jesus goes headlong into the very thing that he knew meant his own death and that he came to do it on purpose because he knew it was the only kind of sacrifice that would fully atone for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus dies on their behalf as their substitute, His death gives them life. His death gives them life. And that's what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus willingly went to the cross. On purpose, he came knowing what the Father's will was. He came to accomplish the very thing that he was sent to do. And he willingly gave himself as a substitute that we might have life. Eternal life. The demonstration of the love that Christ has for his disciples is one that continues because Christ gives everlasting, eternal life to his sheep. Remember I said that the relationship and the love that Jesus had to his disciples was an enduring love. It wouldn't stop. It didn't cease. And that is what we're talking about here. The demonstration of the love that Christ has for his disciples is the one that continues because Christ gives everlasting, eternal life to his sheep. Everlasting and eternal life to his sheep. Both are true. Both are true. In verse 27 of John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He gives them everlasting and eternal life. In John 3.15 it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life in John 3:16 it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life now interestingly this word aionos is a word which can mean both it can mean everlasting and it can mean eternal as the word eon Mean, can mean age here in this sense when it is used Ionios uh, Ionios means that it was everlasting and eternal so whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life same word and the word used in John three sixteen, but have everlasting life same word one usually means at a point of beginning such as everlasting at a point of beginning but the other can go past or present or future. Eternal life is in the past as well as in the future. Everlasting life may have a point of beginning. Jesus came to give everlasting life and but also eternal life. That's why his love is enduring love. It doesn't, didn't stop at the end when he, at, when he died. No, it continued. If you belong to Jesus, he loves you eternally and everlastingly without end. While he was on earth, he loved his own, and now... He is in heaven. He loves his own. The Father who gave them to him loves them, and Jesus loves them, and none that he loves will ever perish, for God's love is eternal and everlasting. Eternal and everlasting. Thirdly, as we look at the last... uh, Point here: the betrayal of Jesus, Judas by Judas, meant that Jesus would go to unto the Father. In other words, the incarnate Christ was destined to return unto the Father, and we know from the Scriptures how that Jesus was revealed as the incarnate of God, that He came by conception of the holy spirit in the womb of mary and that even an angel announced to mary that this child this child should be called jesus for he would save his people from their sins in john 17:5 and now o father glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, so He's going to return unto the Father, and so the prayer which Jesus makes to the Father is to says, "Glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory, the glory which I had with thee before the world was." So this former glory will once again be um, manifest in his life. He would once again go unto the Father and be glorified. And the very act of his crucifixion and sufferings for us became glorification of God. John seventeen twenty four Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so he he says here that that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Well, uh, we will be able to behold the glory that God has given to the Son when we see him. That glorification of Jesus Christ did come because of his great act of redemption for us but then we will see it more fully and understand it more completely when we go to be with him the hour of betrayal was at hand for Jesus in verse 2 here in John chapter 13 and the supper being ended the devil having put it into or put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we find that um, Satan, Satan has done a great work in the heart of Judas. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Later, the full intent of Judas' uh, betrayal under the influence of the evil one became known when he went out to bring his sinful deed to pass. And uh, reading John thirteen twenty-seven to 30, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake these words this unto him, for some that, some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, or the, the money, the money bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sock, went immediately out, and it was night. So the difference between What it says in verse 2 and what it says later in verse 27 to 30 seems to me that Satan entered into him more fully to accomplish those deeds. Now, I suppose it's a little bit difficult for us to understand just how this all kind of happened. How does um, one give themselves over to such evil Things. and maybe it's just as well we don't know that <laughs> or understand it but the evil intent of Satan was to destroy Christ and he was going to use whatever means necessary even if it meant taking one of those who were trusted among the twelve and make him a devil instead of a saint But Jesus, of course, knew this. What a dreadful circumstance that Judas, a trusted companion of the twelve, betrays Jesus, and under the power of the evil passions, the power of evil passions brought on by Satan, sells his master out for 30 pieces of silver. As it says in Matthew 26:14 through16, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunities to betray him. So here is... uh, Judas is open to this kind of, of treachery. He seems to be one that was open to it. And... Perhaps it is a little difficult for us to imagine how, can, how would somebody who is in the very presence of Christ, in the very presence of, of Jesus, the Son of God, have such treachery in their heart to do something like this. In another place in the Bible it says it had better been better for him that he had never been born And so Judas became that betrayer. He became such a betrayer of the Savior. Which reminds us that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know the depths of depravity that the heart can go to? Man does not know it, know the depths of it. God knows the depths of it. Man does not seem to know the depths of his own depravity. But it it is very desperate. It is very depraved. The heart of man is very depraved without God. He that was come from God would go back to be with God the Father... And so we find that he proceeded from the Father in John chapter 8 and verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Jesus knew exactly where he came from. He, he, was the, he, is, no, he is the incarnate. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. You see... Jesus was sent by God the Father into the world. And so, again, this is a very difficult thing to understand, the triunity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're co-eternal, and they coexist together, yet they are different in office, and the function to which God has ordained them. Yes, Jesus existed from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed there. God the Holy Spirit existed. And the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters in the book of Genesis. God created, God the Father created in the beginning. God created all three persons of the Godhead existed prior in eternity past and will throughout eternity future. But Jesus, the third person, the second person of the triunity of the Godhead was sent by God the Father. He took upon himself human flesh. That is why he's called the second Adam. The first Adam Created from the dust of the ground the first, second Adam created in the womb of Mary. But he was, he was created in human flesh in that sense but uncreated as the eternal Son of God. You see, it's important, isn't it, that we kind of get that straight. And that's what I'm talking about when I say pastors struggle to say the right words Because they need to. We need to say it as close as we can to what the Bible has to say. He came in human flesh. He was not in human flesh before. He came, he was sent by God to be known, to have his glory veiled in human flesh. He was sent by God to do that. And he did it. He came. And so in that sense, we can say he was created. But in the other sense of his eternal Essence and eternal nature with God the Father, He was not created. He has ever been eternal, Son of God. And we need to be careful to say those things as closely as we can and as much as we understand. So Jesus came, He was sent of God the Father, you see. In John 16:28 I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. That's a pretty clear statement right there, 1628. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. You see, he's he's eternal, the eternal Son of God. But yet he came. He wasn't in human flesh before, but he became human flesh, the incarnate Son of God. Adam Clark, in his comment, says this in verse 28, I came forth from the Father with whom I existed from eternity in glory, am come into the world by incarnation, I leave the world by my death, and go to the Father by my ascension. These four words contain the whole economy of the gospel of man's salvation. Those four words and a consummate abridgment of the Christian faith. This gave the disciples a key to the whole of our Lord's discourse and especially to that part in John sixteen sixteen that had so exceedingly embarrassed them as John appears, embarrassed them as appears by John. And the verses read as follows. His disciples did not understand John sixteen seventeen through 19, Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while ye shall not see me again. A little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while, we cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that? I said, a little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Well, of course, it was a pretty much much of (coughs) of a mystery to them, wasn't it? But he would, he was there with them. He would go to the cross and he would die. And then he would rise again and they would see him and then he would ascend unto the Father. And so the death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and the final act, the ascension, becomes the consummate summary of the ministry of Christ. And if we strive to understand those those four aspects of his ministry, we understand why he loved them with such an enduring love. He loved them unto the end. He loved them with an enduring love. Not a love that ended, but an enduring love that would not end. An everlasting love and an eternal love. Everlasting, because at some point in time he called them to himself. At some point in time he called each one of us to himself in an everlasting sense. In an eternal sense he has called us through his electing grace. And we will know his enduring love eternally. He loved them to the end. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your enduring love to your people. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for us. We thank you, Father, that you loved us so much you sent your only begotten Son into the world to die for our sins. Lord, we give glory and praise to you.